You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmas Warren from Washington, D.C. Um, and Ankit, today, uh, after I think you did a podcast last week on North Korea's military parade, um, which was a very interesting development. So today, let's maybe switch and talk about more of the the Olympics angle to all of this, where we saw, I guess, a lot of uh, news, developments, analysis about inter-Korean rapprochement, about U.S.-North Korea relations, about all really all manner of things um, within the, the context of the Olympic Games, which... Um, I can't remember. You know, I, I usually watch uh, these these ceremonies or parts of these ceremonies. I I, I can't recall um, this much interest in uh, in the Olympic Games from a political angle beyond the the actual sporting event. Um, so I guess just a couple of, of things before we get started. I mean, uh, this this uh, idea of the inter-Korean rapprochement at the Olympics. Um, they've marched together before uh, several times, but this is the first time they're doing so. With the Olympic Games being hosted by uh, South Korea, so that's why they, they had quite significant interest. But obviously, the political element of this is is very interesting as well. I mean, we've had uh, the new Moon government uh, come to power in South Korea, and they're they've adopted unsurprisingly more of an engagement uh, first approach uh, to the North Koreans. And we've also had um, you know constant talk including on this podcast as well, about um, the prospects for um, U.S.-North uh, Korea relations, as well as potential for the military option to be executed with the so-called bloody nose strategy. And we had these dynamics play out at the Olympics Games. Um, and, and I guess if I were to sort of put a broad frame uh, to all of this, it was um, the contrast between Mike Pence, um, who was looking as fierce as he could in, in, in the Olympic Games uh, with this campaign of maximum pressure by the Trump administration, and the sort of warmth of engagement by the Moon administration that we saw, and also the, the visit of uh, Kim Yo-jong, which is the younger sister of Kim Jong-un at the Olympic Games. So a lot to talk about. Um, where should we start with that? Yeah, I think a good place to start is just to give listeners a TikTok of how we got here, right? I think people who've been listening to this podcast um, heard us talking about potential military options, about North Korean missiles, about the nuclear test last year. Uh, 2017 was an unusually provocative year for North Korea. It showed off uh, two different intercontinental range ballistic missile designs, tested its highest range, um, highest yield thermonuclear weapon ever. Um and, you know, we saw President Trump threaten to totally destroy the country, missiles flying over Japan, threats to bracket Guam. Um, and then all of a sudden now, you know, we're looking at these images coming out of South Korea of inter-Korean warmth. Uh, so how did we get here? All of this happened quite suddenly. Um, so after Kim Jong-un delivers his New Year's Day address that he's been doing since 2013 this year, he invites, um, well, he wishes the South Koreans all the best for a successful uh, Winter Olympics, and he opens the door for talks. And I think the South Koreans, um, as you correctly noted, since, you know, the Moon government came into power in May, um, the government's had a pro-engagement disposition. Um, the Moon is a veteran of the previous government of No Mu Yun when he served as chief of staff. He's very much rooted in the South Korean um, left liberal tradition, which favors a set of economic policies, but also has generally been pro-engagement. Famously, uh, Kim Dae-jung and No Mu-yeon oversaw the sunshine period in inter-Korean ties for about 10 years, uh, which the 
governments of um, Lee Myung-bak and Park Geun-hye uh, completely um, reversed. The, the Lee government declared the Sunshine Policy a failure in, um, in 2010. Um, so effectively, uh, Kim Jong-un makes this overture. The South Koreans um, respond. There is a first meeting at Panmunjom between the directors of the respective government's um, unification ministries, um, and they reopen their military hotline, and talks continue. There is um, the agreement, finally, to have a joint team at the Olympics to march together under the unified peninsula flag. And, of course, we then end up with this historic summit where uh, Kim Jong-nam, the uh, figurehead head of state of North Korea, um, a very old man in his 90s, um, and uh, Kim Yo-jong, um, Kim Jong-un's younger sister, who's been elevated to an important role on the Politburo, um, travel south of the demilitarized zone. Um, Kim Jong-nam becoming the highest-ranking North Korean official to travel south of that border, and Kim Yo-jong being the first member of the Kim family to travel south of that border since the Korean War. Um, and then we see, you know, these striking images coming out of the Blue House, the presidential office in South Korea, of, of a meeting um, between the two sides. Um, there's laughter, they're smiling. Um, it seems that, you know, things are going well. And uh, then we, of course, find out that the North Korean delegation has delivered a message for an inter-Korean summit with President Moon. So that's kind of the TikTok of kind of how things really developed on the inter-Korean front. It's a little bit simplified. Uh, there was a lot more going on behind the scenes. Um, obviously, there is a domestic debate in South Korea about how the Moon government should be treating this. Um, and, you know, we should point out that um, the question of Korean unification, which I think I discussed on a podcast with uh, Stephen Denny recently, reverberates very differently with um, the new generation in South Korea, um, millennials and even um, even Generation X to a degree um, just simply see other things as greater priorities, including kind of bread and butter issues like unemployment, um, economic growth, uh, issues like that are more important for them than kind of the symbolic unification of the country. Um, but, you know, I mean, Prashant, I guess where I'm kind of interested in taking this conversation is that, you know, there's been a lot of cause for optimism, um, especially with the symbolism of the Olympics. I mean, it's, it's difficult not to find it inspirational to see the the two Korean teams marching beneath a flag. I mean, obviously, their results at the sport games are different. The hockey team did not do particularly well. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I think that this period of rapprochement will probably end up unwinding pretty quickly. Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, I would, it's difficult to disagree with that. I, and I think the big question, as, as you pointed out, um, is, you know, how long will this go on for um, what, if anything, will will come out of it? And I think the the sense is not very much. Um, but also, you know, what what are the costs um, that the international community, or more narrowly, the United States, South Korea, and other countries, are going to bear in terms of managing the North Korean challenge while this plays out? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've already seen some indicators of this in terms of the South Koreans asking for a postponement of U.S.-South Korea uh, military exercises that are regularly held. Now there are questions about whether this probably could be uh, postponed yet again if this inter-Korean summit uh, plays out. There's all kinds of implications about what delays about um, the pressure on the North Koreans might do in terms of advances about their program, in terms of further economic concessions that they could gain from uh, South Korea. 
but also, you know, I do think that you pointed out a, a really interesting uh, angle that w that we shouldn't ignore, which is the domestic sentiment in South Korea. Um, there were polls that were coming out. I, th I think Gallup released a poll a few days before the Olympics showing that Moon's approval ratings uh, had fallen um, by, I think, six points. I mean, public opinion in, in South Korea is pretty fickle. Um, and so I, I wouldn't sort of read too much into that. But but there is sort of this this question, which is uh, in the event that this does not go down well, as we've seen with previous ways of engagement, um, you know, what are the costs and who's going to bear sort of the, the responsibility and, and absorb the cost for that uh, domestically, but also um, internationally? And I, and I think the other component that's really interesting here is how the Japanese are perceiving all of this and their mm -hmm. dynamics between the United States and uh, and South Korea, because um, Prime Minister Abe has has been very clear about his messaging that um, you know they shouldn't take uh, North Korea's bait on this on this engagement proposal, and they should be very cautious about how they're highlighting this. But obviously, that creates fissures between uh, between Japan and, and and South Korea that to a certain extent are already there, but also places it more and sort of closer to where the United States and the Trump administration is and all of this. So that that's a very interesting dynamic as well, I think, to watch for. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. You raised a bunch of really good points. Uh, so first, let me respond to the domestic point. Um, I think I think it's completely va uh, completely valid. It's it, it's a little difficult for me to parse the change in approval ratings because uh, I think it also collided with a bunch of uh, other things going on in South Korea, like this whole you know the cryptocurrency regulation stuff. I think really hurt the Moon government um, at the at the polls and came around the same time as the inter-Korean rapprochement was beginning. Um, and also we see a general trend with new South Korean presidents entering office with high approvals and then gradually the public going sour on them. So we'll yep. see if Moon's going to defy that trend. Um, but certainly I think it's an issue. I think what's interesting is that the um, the right-wing opposition in South Korea has been quite vocal about um, the North Korean uh, rapprochement. But I, I think, you know, just after Park uh, scandal, uh, the South Korean conservatives have simply not recovered to a point where they're um, having a a singular uh, and widespread effect on the national discourse. So I think the opposition has been quite easy for the Moon government to ignore, at least for now. On on the alliance management stuff, I think, yeah, I mean, that's also been a striking point for me where I maybe differ with a few uh, U.S.-based observers. Um, I think there was a little bit of a panic um, when these inter-Korean talks were happening, and especially when Mike Pence was going around. Um, you know, in a way, depending on your perspective, he seemed a bit rude to his hosts in South Korea by um, not, you know, really adhering to protocol and not standing when the joint Korean team um, entered the ceremonies, um, shaking everyone's hands at the dinner except for the North Koreans. Um, although that does make sense on a diplomatic level. Um, but everything that Pence was doing and everything that Moon were doing, you know, just seemed a little bit dissonant. To some people, it looked like alliance decoupling. Um, but, you know, I think I think it's a little bit too early to say that the alliance is about to crumble. I mean, yes, you know, there are some worrying signs. Like, I actually worry about, you know, the the delay to the exercises um, was probably necessary for an overture like this to occur. But, you know, they can't be delayed further. And the two sides haven't fixed a date yet. So it does give them a little bit of wiggle room. They've simply said it will happen after the Paralympics end, which is on March 18th. Doesn't mean they have to start on March 19th. They could start on April 1st, um, giving sort of a 10-day period for this potential inter-Korean summit to take place. Um, but really, I mean, th these exercises will ultimately have to happen. And that's part of the reason that I'm a little skeptical is that the U.S. will not want to see the exercises visibly degraded as a result of the inter-Korean talks. And I think the South Korean government is smart enough to know that. Um, and, you know, to give the South Koreans quite a bit of credit here, it's that, you know, the Moon government is smart enough to know where the where the limits are on engagement. 
Um, and that's true when it comes to sanctions. That That's true when it comes to the alliance with the United States. Um, and, you know, they're not just going to give away um, all sorts of things. I think a lot of, you know, commentators in the U.S. also just have a little bit of a condescending approach to the South Koreans sometimes that, you know, it's like, oh, look, they're going into the talks. They're going to give away the horse before we can, you know, manage the alliance. And, you know, it's, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I mean, this is a, a legitimate democratically elected government that's, you know, that has some degree of a right to conduct its its affairs with its northern neighbor. Um, but I also think that the Moon government will, will you know, work with the United States on this. I mean, last year, I think we, um, we were both a little bit, um, you know, pleasantly surprised by the Moon government's reaction to North Korea's continued missile testing. I mean, the Moon barely had a week in office before North Korea tested the Hwasong-12 successfully. And then obviously by July, we have the new ICBM. And, you know, Moon and Trump actually, despite their differences, despite the Korea-US free trade agreement um, issue, managed to make it through the year pretty successfully. And I think, um, you know, now it's time for the United States to um, return that favor and work with the South Koreans. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, I think the other uh, angle here that's interesting to approach, so we, we looked at the, the sort of South Korean component, and you're right. I mean, there are so many issues there. I mean, whether it's, you know, sort of the, the usual um, degree of autonomy question in alliance uh, management between countries. Um, but also, I mean, it, it is interesting to see when, when these events happen, you do have um, divisions between um, liberal and, and conservative camps in, you know, in all of these countries involved really, right? I mean, whether it's the United States, whether it's South Korea and Japan as well, um, that favor engagement or, or are less favorable or more skeptical um, of engagement. So I, I also think that that is important to keep in mind as well, that this is only partly about, uh, you know, South Korea and North Korea. I think these views, you know, really are deeply held uh, beyond those. And part of that is, is, is political um, beyond beyond the issues themselves. I, I think the other thing that that's interesting to talk about is, is the U.S. role in all of this. I mean, I guess, you know, Pence, as I mentioned earlier, you know, started off at, at, at the Olympic Games, um, you know, quite steely, um, looking very, uh, you know, resolved, um, and this idea of a maximum pressure approach and taking a very tough stance. But on the way back and since then, I mean, the White House has also tempered that a little bit with an idea that, you know, the, the door is slightly more open to some talks, mm-hmm. um, even if this maximum pressure approach continues. Now, I, I myself, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical about the degree of change that we've seen. I mean, depending on who the United States talks to, it seems, whether it's South Korea or Japan or, you know, what, what President Trump is saying versus what Mike Pence is saying. It seems like you know th- there isn't that much that has changed. I mean, they, they're keeping the the door open to some form of dialogue without preconditions, but you know the maximum pressure approach is, is, is still there, and I, I I do sense that as we've been discussing here, a lot of this is going to depend on what the North Koreans do, what the South Koreans do, uh, more so than whether it's a, a policy that's being dictated. Um, by the United States, but you know, sort of curious uh, about your thoughts there about where you come down on you know the degree to which we actually saw some of this policy change. I do think some media outlets did play that up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I you know I continue to see very little um, real change since probably about August 2017. Um, August 2017 was interesting because um, Mattis, uh, you know, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson penned an op-ed together in the Wall Street Journal where for the first time they um, 
put to you know put to paper an offer for um, talks with different conditions, not denuclearization conditions, but a testing moratorium. And then uh, Joe Yun, the special representative, clarified that effectively the United States wanted to see the North Koreans come out and make some kind of statement, even put possibly privately, saying that they are entering a period of ballistic missile moratorium. Um, so they would make that announcement, and then once 60 days had passed, the United States would take that as a show of good faith and then enter talks. Obviously, that never happened. And, um, you know, yeah, this— this whole thing with Pence, too, I think, is um, is sort of you know building on that with a little bit of a shift now. I think maybe the United States thinks that the North Koreans um, don't need to conduct short-term um, missile testing. They still need to conduct tests of their ICBMs further, I think. But uh, perhaps in the short term that there is a, a path to some kind of talks, talks about talks. Um, but again, you know, it's, it, you know, the problem that we've had with U.S. policy is that— um, multiple senior officials are reading from separate books on policy. Uh, so, you, so, you know, you have kind of the NSC crowd, which has been, a, you know, more in favor of preemptive strikes, has a entirely divergent theory of what North Korea seeks with its nuclear we um, weapons. We've had officials at the NSC, including McMaster, imply that Kim Jong-un is irrational, undeterrable, seeks to coercively unify the peninsula using his nuclear weapons. And then we've had, um, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and uh, Pacific Commander Harry Harris say that North Korea's weapons are for deterrence purposes. And, you know, the elephant in the room again, I think, is the president who at any moment, you know, could make a comment off the cuff saying that, you know, you'll see what you know, will happen to North Korea, some kind of really obscure and ambiguous threat that, you know, again, will throw everything um, off kilter. So anything could happen. Um, I'm not particularly optimistic, um, but, you know, I'll say the source of my optimism has little to do with diplomatic acumen um, in in the United States. I think, you know, that's been a constant throughout the last, you know, I mean, even going back past the Trump administration, uh, this has really never been led by the United States. The North Koreans have managed to set the tone of a, of a lot of what happens with engagement. Um, and I think they've been able to do that successfully. There is a degree of a success here for North Korea uh, with all of this that's happening. And, you know, you have to think about what they're going to ask for if an inter-Korean summit happens. Um, you know, there are some of the low-level takeaways like family reunions, um, potentially a restart of the Kaesong industrial complex, which will be difficult because of the expansion of the sanctions regime. Um, or, you know, the North Koreans ask for more dramatic takeaways, um, things that will legitimately put a wedge in the alliance and begin that decoupling process. And that is North Korea's ultimate objective. So um, I think, you know, we just need to be wary of, of where the North Koreans are looking to take this. And I think, you know, if if we reconvene for a podcast in two months time uh, when the U.S.-South Korea exercises are underway um, and, you know, we have an inter-Korean summit behind us by then, um, it'll be, you know, I think that the possibility of us being in a very different place would be will be quite likely. Great. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's a good note to end on uh, with that sort of cautiously optimistic tone. Before we go, I, I, I just wanted to ask uh, one final question, Ankit. So, um, you know, you, you monitor North Korea's uh, missile developments quite closely, um, you know, security developments, but also North Korea's, um, you know, domestic developments as well. What, what are you looking for, you know, in the next few months, um, whether it's... Um, you know, testing from North Korea, whether it's, you know, their approach to engagement, but also this uh, Byunjin project and, and the North Korean economy with, with this maximum pressure approach and, and the sanctions. I mean, what, what should listeners be watching for in that respect? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, another thing we have to look forward to in April is um, Kim Il-sung's birthday, uh, which is coming up on uh, April 15th. Uh, no parade this year for that date, but they may 
they may choose to do something. I mean, you know, watching North Korean propaganda, there has been a, a big focus on self-reliance uh, in, a, in a range of industries lately. Um, specifically, there's been a lot of focus on uh, heavy vehicles, textiles. I think they're looking to show that the sanctions are not having an effect. I think that's also partly the effect of, of staging a military parade like this. You know, you need to fuel up a bunch of heavy vehicles, march them through um, your capital city. Um, regarding testing, um, I think, you know, we are entering the period of solid fuel missiles, um, at least going to the next level. Uh, the North Koreans, um, as I mentioned on the last podcast, showed one new solid fuel short-range missile, and I think that's possibly the one that they might have tested an engine for in October. But they're getting better at um, building missiles all around. We've seen signs last year that North Korea is looking at um, composite materials for um, more efficient airframes for missiles, and we might see some of that come up later this year. We haven't seen a submarine launch ballistic missile tested in a very long time now. And I think they're frankly overdue to test one of those, um, especially given the hints we've seen about a, a successor submarine launch ballistic missile to the original Pukuksong-1 KN-11 missile. Um, so we might see some of that coming up. Um, the Pyongyang project, I think, is um, going to remain important for North Korean propaganda. Kim Jong-un emphasized um, economics quite a bit in his New Year's Day address, which I think didn't get as much attention because of the inter-Korean stuff. But it continues to be an important part of his own domestic legitimacy. The ability to show that um, even if the peninsula remains divided, that North Korea can offer something to its people on par with what South Korea offers its people. Um, I think that's where a lot of the Kim regime's legitimacy lies. Obviously, that's not true on the face, but um, I think including that in propaganda is going to be important for Kim Jong-un. Um, right. Yeah, so Prashant, thanks for joining me. Yeah, always good to be with you. Yeah, good conversation. We'll, uh, I'm sure we'll come back to these issues. The Korean Peninsula is not cooling down anytime soon. Um, so to our listeners, thank you for listening. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, please do so. And if you have, but you haven't yet left us a review, also, uh, you know, leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back soon with more.